My name is Kirsten, and I work here on staff at the house. Yay, staff. Um, but I just wanted to say welcome to everyone. If this is your first time, your hundredth time, if you are an intern returning from California for the week, make sure to say hey to her, by the way, if you remember Christina. She is back. Um, but we really are really thankful you are here, and we really do hope that you feel welcome and known by us as staff, by each other, and by the Lord in this place. How many freshmen do I have out here today? Just, yay! Great. Okay, freshmen, pretend that you are sitting in your Western Humanities class and your Chem class, and you're just being lectured at. Okay, you got that? How far away does graduation feel in that moment? Forever, right? This promise that eventually, if you get the right grades, if you take the right classes, then you'll graduate. But right now, it feels like forever. Seniors. <laughs> graduation feels like tomorrow, doesn't it? Every week in core group, I lead a group of senior girls. We're always like, we only have 14 more weeks of core group. Because it feels like graduation is about to happen. I know for our interns that when they look back on freshman year of college and they look back on this journey of college that they could say it went by so fast. Yet when they look at that journey, they learned so much. I mean, Hannah... She learned that a short perm didn't really work with her cheekbones very well. And Mary Alice, she learned that color coordinating was not all it was cracked up to be. Thomas, well, he learned that athletic gear. And of course, Will learned that haircuts are no fun, so, you know. You're welcome. So those are actually all legit pictures from their freshman year, including Thomas's. That was his freshman year of college. Don't worry. Okay, but on a, on a serious note, we all have these journeys that you're in college, you are at the beginning of freshmen, seniors, you're at the end of, and there's so much that happens in those four years. There's so much that happens on these journeys. And that's why our sermon series this semester, if you were here last week or if you've seen on Instagram or Facebook, that our sermon series is called The Life in Between. Not only because you guys are in college, but because we also, as believers, are always living this life in between. We've had resurrection, death of Christ, resurrection that happened, us, and then this promise that he's coming back. The promise that his kingdom will come. That we will be co-heirs with him. And so we live in the middle. And we wanted to do this series because there's so many questions that happen here. Because pain, suffering, death is still happening. And we are longing for the days that there shall be no more tears and no more sadness. But what do we do now? How do we make decisions now in the midst of all of that? 
that's why we're preaching on this. And we're doing that through Bible characters, figuring out how they lived a life of a journey between a given promise and a fulfilled promise to help us maybe do this journey a little bit different. So today we're going tonight, we're looking at the story of Sarah, like the Mr. Mrs. Abraham Sarah. I wish they had last names so you could talk about them like that. Um, but just a little side note, her name changes throughout the story. I'm just going to call her Sarah and Abraham Abraham just to keep it clear so we're not confused as we go. So let's pray and then we will dive into her story. Lord, um, thanks for stories, for letting us know we are not alone, we are not crazy, um, for giving us direction through the life of other people, um, whether in scripture or around us. Um, I pray that you communicate tonight. Um, your words come from my mouth and from scripture. Um, thanks, for, thanks for the story. In your name, amen. All right, so the story of Sarah starts in Genesis 12 as Abraham is given a promise and a command. God tells Abraham, he says, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your family, and go to the land I will show you. For I will make you into a great nation, a famous one, one that I will bless. And I will bless all who bless you, and I will curse all who curse you. And through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. A huge command and a huge promise. I mean, go. I'm not going to tell you where. Just go. I'll show you. Pretty big deal. And then a promise that he is going to be the father of all nations, all of them. That he will bless, that his nations will bless everyone throughout the earth. And not only that, but when we look at the character of Sarah and the character of Abraham, Sarah at this point is 65 years old, Abraham is 75, and Sarah is barren. They haven't had any kids. So for her, for God to say to them that you are going to be the father of a great nation means that they're going to have kids. And that promise in itself is huge. So these two listen to God, pack up their stuff, and head out. And they start heading towards a land called Canaan. So as they are walking in obedience, God continues to build on this promise. So they're in this land, and he tells them, look around. This is all yours. You will inherit this land. But then a famine hits. And so they leave this land. They leave this journey, take a detour, and head to Egypt to seek refuge. And that's where we come to our first part of Scripture. So, Zach, if you want to put that part up, it's from Genesis 12, and you guys can read with me. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this his wife, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, 
that you may go well with me, that they may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and the princes of Pharaoh saw her, and they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Sarah gets told, hey, it's because of your beauty, because of you, I might die. So I need you to lie for me. I need you to lose your identity as my wife, or in this passage, as even her name wasn't even mentioned in there, they just began to, began to call her that woman and go and be with Pharaoh. I mean, we can only assume what happened there. But Sarah is put into this situation. Things are happening to her. She's given the blame in this story. All the while, Abraham is receiving all this wealth and servants and animals. But then God steps in, and he causes a plague to go on the house of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh figures out that Sarah is Abraham's wife. Pharaoh gets mad, obviously, and tells him to leave, get out. And they do. But Sarah leaves with a burden, a burden of what happened in Egypt to her, this blame that was put on her that she is now carrying. Her identity is given back. She is now the wife again of Abraham, and they do continue on their journey. Their detour goes back on track. Years pass. Ten years actually pass. All the while, while they encounter new and old characters, make decisions, and God continues to speak. God continues to build upon this promise. We read that Abraham will cry out and say, God, how is this going to work? Like, we are still childless. And God, through a burning sacrifice, through his words, tells Abraham, it will be through you. You will be the father of this great nation. And he says, look around you. Come outside. Can you number the stars? Because neither will you be able to number your descendants. So Sarah and Abraham have these promises that they believe right in their heads. But ten years has passed, and we step into the next little story of Sarah kind of playing a star role. Genesis 16. Sarah had a female Egyptian servant, which, wonder where they got her from. Obviously, their little Egypt detour whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that, she, that I shall obtain a child by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave, him, gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw, 
that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord be the judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So this story leaves us, the angry wife, a pregnant runaway slave, and a passive husband. People say that the Bible isn't as exciting as soap operas. They should probably read the Bible, because look at that. We got one right here. For me, even in studying this passage, I still have trouble figuring out if I like or dislike any of these characters. I keep going back and forth with them because they are just so complex. Sarah, I I understand this impatience. It's been 10 years since you've given me this promise. I'm now 75. She looks at the situation and says, I must be the problem. If God said to you, Abraham, that he's going to make you the father, maybe I'm the one that's the issue. So she steps in and fulfills the promise of God on her own. And we can't know for sure what her intentions were. She might have been doing it out of humility, out of her attempt to try to participate in this kingdom. But the way I look at it, the way I've read Sounds like she's doing a lot of it out of her own insecurity. Her saying, I'm barren. It's all I can, it's all I can be. And so I guess I must just be, I must be the wrong. I must be the problem. So I better step out. She's still carrying that burden too from Egypt where she was put blame, where she was blamed for all of these things. And so I see her also functioning out of that, out of this, I'm, I'm this victim. So... I must step out of the picture. Oftentimes when I'm insecure about something, the thing I can do to make myself feel better is to step out or to fix it and make it something else and then I don't continue to feel beat down. And I see her doing this in this situation. Or maybe she really was just impatient and she was like, it's about time to go. I mean, uh, if any of you have the little quiz up app, I get really anxious, like I get really like, oh, I don't like waiting. When it was like waiting for your friend to respond, like it takes two seconds. But 10 years. No matter what, though, her intention was, wasn't God's desire. I mean, we obviously see the repercussions of her decision. She becomes angry and jealous and bitter. So much so that she beats and abuses or starves, we don't know exactly, her slave. And Hagar experiences this contempt as well. Everyone in the situation is affected by this decision. So Hagar runs off. And Sarah stays there and blames Abraham because, you know, we never blame anybody for the problems that are ours, ever. I never do that. I always take it for myself. Just kidding. Um, But in these decisions, she has caused a mess. 
But the story continues. Hagar out in the desert is visited by the Lord, who gives her a promise as well, and asks her to return to Sarah. So Hagar returns, bears Ishmael, and then 13 more years happen. 13. So it has now been 25 years since they first were given their promise. 25 years of journeying towards this unfulfilled promise. And this happy little couple, or threesomes, just living life. But then God returns again with another more specific promise. He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm changing your name from Abram to Abraham. And I'm going to change Sarah's too. So we'll put that up there. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And this shouldn't be a shock that he was using Sarah. I mean, he had caused a plague to happen in Egypt so that Sarah and Abraham could be back together. He had kept them together and had them still journeying. But now this promise was solid. That even through just changing the suffix of her name, that everyone would know that she was going to be the mother of multitudes, the princess of multitudes. And then the next section, we get a little bit of a glimpse of how Sarah is just experiencing this whole thing, that when she finds out as a 89-year-old woman that she is about to give birth, what she begins to think. So Abraham has just been visited by three men, one of them which ends up being the Lord. And that brings us into this conversation. Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Abraham said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Sarah laughs in the face of the Lord. She laughs in the face of an unfulfilled promise. Which, yeah, she's 89 years old. She's waited 25 years. This, are you serious? Like, you really think that's possible? It's sure to come out. And that's why I actually do think this laughter is kind of beautiful. It is this honest doubt of like, are you joking? 
and it is received with an incredible statement by the Lord. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's not. And in this, Sarah receives three just encouraging moments through her being found out that she laughed. First of all, she laughed to herself. It only could be God that knew she had been laughing. Secondly, she was just told she was about to be part of a miracle. A 90-year-old woman giving birth. She was about to be part of something big. And she was also reminded that through her mistakes, through the detours she took, God was still going to fulfill his promise. She hadn't messed it up. And then the story concludes. Sarah gives birth to Isaac, which his name means laughter. And we see Sarah rejoicing. We see her rejoicing over this laughter that the Lord made versus the laughter that she made. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone hears it will laugh over me. Finally. So why does this story of Sarah matter? Why is it important for us to know as we journey? Because if, it, if her mistakes and her wrong turns didn't stop that promise from being fulfilled, why, why listen to her? Well, first of all, that in itself is why we learn and read this story. We can't screw up God's promises. They are unconditional. No matter how big your mistake is, no matter how, much, how many issues you have or doubts you have, you can't stop him from coming back. You can't stop his kingdom from coming and his will from being done. You can't. He has stepped into a covenant with us. Just like we step into marriage covenants and say, I'm all in no matter what. He is saying that to us. And he is not like us, where when something goes wrong, we back out, or being human. He is saying, my promises are unconditional. They are always there. Without condition, your mistakes do not stop his promises from being fulfilled. But then we also can look at Sarah, and we can know with confidence that his promise will be fulfilled, will be in here. So how do we journey? What does that look like? And Sarah shows us ways for good or bad that her journey, her, what her journey looked like and how her decisions affected that time. And we see her at first being obedient, and we see her stepping into something that seems really hard to step into. Go, I'll show you. And he does. But then we watch her begin to make decisions out of her barrenness. We watch her make decisions out of her victim state. And now, yes, she was. She was a victim 
of people in Egypt, of Abraham, of blame. Just as we are, we are victims often of abuse, of people putting things on us that aren't our faults, of a lot of pain. And we are to mourn, and we are to feel that. But we watch as Sarah lives out of that, makes decisions out of that. That she chooses to have Hagar sleep with her husband because she is so concerned about her barrenness that she makes decisions from there. And when we do that, we see things like jealousy, anger, resentment, bitterness, tied very closely to living with this, it's called a victim mentality. A perfect example of what this looks like is if you've seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks. If you haven't seen it, it's really great. Just, you'll cry. Sorry. Um, But the main character in this movie lives like this. While she has not been hurt by somebody else, she has been hurt by herself and keeps herself in a little box and nothing is ever good enough. Nothing can make her happy. Everything is difficult around her. All signs of this victim mentality. And so the whole movie, you are just like so frustrated with her because she just won't get along with anybody. But then this moment happens. She's sitting in the studio, and the song, Let's Go Fly a Kite, is being played. You're welcome. Um... But it starts being played, and she begins to smile. And everyone is weeping, because it is this beautiful moment that this woman has finally chosen to not function out of her pain, but simply to smile. And this is what I had hoped for Sarah, for the choices she was making as she was on this journey. That instead of choosing to live out of her barrenness, she would choose something else. And for us, it is, it is even more clear because we live on this side of resurrection. Christ has the victory, victory over death and sin, and we are part of his team. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that we have the victory as well. And so instead of us choosing to live and make decisions out of this victim, I'm not good enough mentality. We can confidently make decisions out of a victor mentality with this confidence that we are on Christ's team and we can journey as a victor. And the other thing we really see Sarah choosing in this journey they're doing in this journey is not believing that God can do anything. That the way she makes decisions in these 25 years does not show that she thinks God is as big as he is claiming and he is. Her decisions make things small. If she would have known that this promise meant that she would be the mother in the line of Jesus, 
I wonder how much bigger she would have moved. When we live not believing that God can do anything, that anything is too hard for him, we live small as well. We miss the miracles, the 90-year-old woman he wants to have a child. We miss those things because we don't see him as that big. And we don't wait for that. I think the easiest way for us to see a lot of that is in romantic relationships. The number of people that think that you have to find your husband in college, especially here, is pretty crazy. And so you find this boyfriend or girlfriend, and the relationship's fine, but you feel like you have to hold on to it. You feel like you have to settle for that because you don't believe that God is bigger. You don't believe that he is up to something, that you can wait for that. And I'll tell you, after meeting my husband at 27, I am a huge advocate that waiting is good and great. That came off weird, but you know. (laughs) Great. Okay. But we don't have to settle for jobs that are smaller than what the Lord has planned. We don't have to settle for friendships that are less than what they can be. We don't believe that God can do anything. We sit with broken family relationships believing that there's no way forgiveness is possible. But when we live believing that nothing is too hard for God, that he will fulfill his promise, our life has changed. This has been my prayer for you guys since Christmas, that this semester you would understand and believe that nothing is too hard for God. That You are sitting in a time where he's saying, you have victory. I'm going to fulfill my promise. Let's do this. Because when you believe that nothing is too hard for God, you begin to take risks because it affects everything. If you believe that nothing is too hard for God, you begin to believe that when he says, do not be anxious, I have you, you begin to take a risk and say, okay, I'm going to not let worry dominate my life. And when you believe that nothing is too hard for God, you begin to believe that even though everyone has left you, everyone has let you down, that when God promises that he will never leave you or forsake you, You begin to take a risk and talk to somebody who's by themselves because you know you're not being left. And when you believe that nothing is too hard for God, you believe when he says, cry out to me, I will hear your cry. 
And you take that risk and you cry out. And you believe that when he says, I am your Savior, I will wipe your sins clean. You say, if he can do anything, nothing's too hard for him, then I'm not too hard for him. And we take a risk and let shame not dominate our life. And we believe that he will care for us. And so we take a risk and care for somebody in need. And when we believe that he can do anything, we can believe that he loves us. And we take the risk to love our enemies. I want us to be people who believe this, who believe the promise that he can do anything. And so when he calls us and says, I promise that you will be co-heirs with Christ, that you then take this risk and you look around and say, okay, where are these gaps? Where are these barren spots that need to be filled? And because you believe he can do anything, you go and fill them. See, I was reading online about this town called Christ, Christ, Christ Community, something, New Zealand. And there was an earthquake there 10 years, or 2000, in 2010, and a lot of the city was left barren. There was just nothing there. Morale was down. And this organization decided, hey, let's step into this, these gaps. And they began to build pavilions out of pallets. They put up putt-putt golf courses. They had dance floors that they would put out. My favorite was they had outdoor movie theaters powered by, like, stationary bikes. And as I was looking at this organization, because I was super intrigued, I was listening to the co-founder talk. And he said this, don't wait for disaster. Go and fill the gaps. Fill the barren places in your city, activated by your creativity. And this is what I think we will do when we believe that God can do anything, that nothing is too hard for him. That we will have the confidence to step into those places in this journey and fill those gaps. I want us to be people that when we hear about a 13-year-old boy who has no place to live, that we choose to adopt him. I want us to be people that when we hear about women with no rights and no money in Africa, that we teach them how to crochet and begin a small business, helping their life be better and empowered. I hope that we can be a people that when we hear about a refugee family that is homeless, that we invite them to play with us. That we can be a people when we have a dark secret, get help. And a people that when we meet somebody new, can invite them into our community. Because all of those things that I just mentioned, I have watched my friends do because they believed that nothing was too hard for the Lord. Now when we do this, this does not mean that life is perfect, that all pain is gone. 
but it allows us to walk through that much differently. As I was reading the story of Sarah and studying up on it, I came um, across Galatians 5, which is the fruits of the Spirit. And I was like, oh, I wish, I wish that Sarah could have read this when she was in this journey. That she could have read these fruits of the flesh and been like, oh my gosh, if I make these decisions, this is what's going to happen. Because I kept reading, oh yeah, that was her, that was her, that was her. But then I became thankful because I was so glad that we live in this time where the Holy Spirit is here. And we've been given him to guide us in this journey, to provide us with these fruits to strengthen us as we make these decisions. So as I read this last bit of scripture, I'm reading it in the message version because I really love how Eugene Peterson writes it. I just want you to think about your journey and which fruits are the ones that you are seeing Would you identify your life more by the first list or the second list? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfying wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that the basic holiness permeates all things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. In Hebrews 11, the passage we looked at last week, this hall of fame of faith, it mentions Sarah. And it doesn't mention Sarah for her mistakes, but it talks about her faith. Even if your life right now, your journey is littered with that first list, you like Sarah, your mess can be turned into beauty. I hope for you that you guys journey and make decisions in this journey out of victory. That you journey and make decisions believing that nothing is too hard for God. 
that when you live life, when you're in a season of prosperity, that you choose faith. And that when you are even in a season of barrenness, that you can live a life of abundance. Let us pray. Father God, I, um, I ask that, that these students know that you love them, that you, you have big plans for them. And I pray that they know that your, your promises are not going to fail. Remind them that you are with them in this journey, in this longing, and that you have them. Pray this in your name. Amen.